Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 13 selected verses. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the, uh, of the Lord, their God, uh, for a fourth part of the day and another fourth part of the day, they made confession and worship their God. Twelve years later, Nehemiah 13, while this was taking place, twelve years later, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, about 12 years, I asked leave of the king to return to Jerusalem. When I returned to Jerusalem, I discovered the wrong that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah, preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the room. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spend the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. <laughs> and in those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Asdod, and they could not speak language of Judah, but spoke the language of various people. And I contended with them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them to take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your, sons to, uh, your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Remember me, O God, for good. The Word of God. Are you sure? Please be seated. Um, it's more like a question. Thanks be to God for this Word. We are in the final sermon of the sermon series of the book of Nehemiah. We decided to look at the book of Nehemiah. You can go online to our archives to catch up on all of these things. It's been an interesting journey studying the book of Nehemiah. The question as we look back at Nehemiah, we are now in chapter 9 through 13. As we look back in all the sermons and as you followed along reading Nehemiah, the question is, is the book of Nehemiah a leadership success story? And here's the thing, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is one book, Ezra and Nehemiah is not a leadership guide. Much of modern Christian tradition hasn't really known what to do with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah originally was one book, one narrative. So Christianity hasn't really known what to do with these books because of a deeply held assumption that the Bible is primarily moral instruction literature. That is that it's a divine rule book, and the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, therefore, are usually turned into examples of how to lead revival, Ezra, or how to create momentum for your next church building project, like installing lights. And I'm not joking. 
Here's a list of book titles just from searching Ezra and Nehemiah on Amazon.com. Nehemiah, Becoming a Godly Leader. Revive Us Again, A Study in Ezra and Nehemiah. Rebuild the Walls, Lessons in Leadership from Nehemiah. Ezra, A Biblical Model for Restoration. The Nehemiah Factor, 16 Vital Keys to Living Like a Missional Leader. Nehemiah, Becoming a Disciplined Leader. Overcoming Fear and Discouragement with Ezra and Nehemiah. And lastly, Leadership for Greatness, Leadership Lessons from the Book of Nehemiah. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for how this trend has taken place in Christianity. We, we really want the Bible to speak a relevant and personal message to us and to our day. And that is indeed what the Bible is for. But the way the Bible goes about doing that is not at all similar to the method of self-help literature we would find on Amazon.com or other bookstores or even the Christian versions of this. See, I believe that biblical literature, the Bible doesn't communicate by offering simple answers and moral examples. Rather, I believe the, the characters that populate the, the biblical stories are all deeply flawed, often ambiguous, and a mixed bag of success and failure. Kind of like you and me. Kind of like Queen Elizabeth. This week, we know that Queen Elizabeth today, uh, her casket is lying in Westminster Hall and people are standing in line, some for 24 hours to come through and pay their respects to the queen. As we look back on this 70 years of reign for Queen Elizabeth, the question is, was her reign a successful reign? And the answer is ambiguous. It is a mixed bag. For many, we look at the length of, of, of her, her leadership and her stay and would celebrate that. And there are many good things that Queen Elizabeth had done, even as a head of state and a symbolic head of state. But for some of us who grew up in colonized South Africa, it is maybe a different question. Was Queen Elizabeth's reign successful? Well, again, colonization is a mixed bag. I would say it's never good. However, I love Manchester United soccer team, football team, because of the queen, well, because of colonization. I played cricket at state level in my country because of colonization. I speak English to you as my second language because of colonization. But the United Kingdom also helped, or helped, <laughs> they colonized by force my country and participated in racism. So as we look back at the reign of Queen Elizabeth, could we say that her reign was a success? It depends. And so here we get to the book of Nehemiah, and as we've traveled along with Nehemiah and Ezra, and we look back and we get to these last chapters, the question is, was Nehemiah's story a successful story? And the reality for Nehemiah is that it was a mixed bag. He built the walls, but there was failure at the end. 
So the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah tell a realistic story of religious people who are zealous to help others see the world and God in a new way. Ezra and Nehemiah are full of passion and love for God and, ever, and they do everything in their power to lead the Israelites into a new era of devotion to their God and it doesn't work. The story ends with Nehemiah angry in tears, beating the Israelites, as we saw pulling out some of their hair, for violating the covenant commandments of the Torah. Does that sound like a pattern for inspirational leadership? Would you like us pastors as leaders and your elders to pull out your hair to give money for it? No. <laughs> but if you don't, anyways, yeah. It doesn't sound like successful leadership. And that's because Ezra and Nehemiah aren't offering us, the Bible doesn't offer us a list of tips to be a successful leader. In fact, scripture works in exactly the opposite way and the message of Ezra and Nehemiah, I believe, is exactly the opposite. In reality, Ezra and Nehemiah offer a sobering story of leaders who cannot bring about the full realizations of their hopes and dreams even when they tried and prayed their hardest. This theme fulfills a crucial role in the larger biblical storyline until we get to the Gospels. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah ends with failure and in order to understand why it ended in this unsatisfying ending, we need to do a brief review of the entire book again. So basically, this is the summary. Ezra is a Bible nerd who gets other people to take the Bible seriously. Nehemiah is essentially a project manager for rebuilding the ancient walls of Jerusalem, the end. But we'll say more. These stories are actually one unified whole, as I just said, and they were designed to be read as one big story, and they're told in three parallel movements with two conclusions. Three parallel movements, two conclusions, one positive, one negative. So here are the parallel movements. The first parallel movement is Ezra chapter one through six. We see that Zerubbabel in Ezra leads the first wave of exiles back from Babylon and rebuilds the temple and there are mixed results because of that. The second wave is where we find Ezra in chapter seven through 10 of Ezra, where Ezra attempts spiritual revival among the, the returned exiles now, and we see again with mixed results. And then the third movement of this one large book is Nehemiah chapter one through seven, where Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, and again with mixed results. So there's these three movements throughout the book with mixed results and two concluding movements, and here they are. The conclusions are Nehemiah 8 to 10, Ezra and Nehemiah stage a revival in Jerusalem. And as we heard last week from Pastor Icky, if we had to stop only there, it is a beautiful celebration of people hearing the word of God anew and afresh and committing their lives to the Torah, to the covenant, and to God's work in the world. But we see in chapter 11 through 13 that basically this commitment fails and ends with Nehemiah's anger and disappointment. 
And so in these first three movements, each one begins with a lot of hope and possibility. In fact, each one starts with the, the, the secular leaders, the Persian king sponsoring an Israelite leader to lead a wave of exiles back to the ruins of Jerusalem to rebuild their lives. The, 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 the Persian king is sending these people to go and rebuild the temple and read the law to these people and rebuild the wall. And in each case, the group returns and makes some attempt to restoration, whether it's the building of the temple, making a commitment to the Torah, rebuilding the city walls. And in each case, they face hostility from without and failure from within. And after these three cycles, we should start to get the clue and ask ourselves, why do these great things keep concluding with mixed results? Welcome to the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's all a mixed bag. And in fact, after reading from Genesis all the way through Kings, you know why the Israelites ended up in Babylon in the first place. According to Israel's prophets, it was the result of centuries of abandoning God for other gods, Yahweh, the true God for other gods, and for allowing covenant violation and social injustice to happen. Then you read the prophets who said that uh, that was indeed just a consequence, but not the end of the story. God was going to fulfill God's great promise to Abraham to bring a divine blessing on all the rebellious nations, which God would do through Israel, despite of their failure and exile. God was going to bring the remnant back to Jerusalem and make them the epicenter of the new kingdom of God that brings peace and justice to all the nations. In other words, our hopes are really high when we get to the book of Ezra, chapter 1, and we read that the exiles are finally coming back home from Babylon. We think, this is finally it. The great restoration of God's kingdom when Israel is forgiven will become and will become the new covenant people that is now. We should be brimming with hope and expectation as we read Ezra and Nehemiah. But at every turn of the story, things don't work out the way that they should. When the new temple is rebuilt, many people are thrilled Yet we're told that the elders, when they saw this, who were alive in the days of Solomon's temple, they wept because there was a great gap between the expectation of the old temple rebuild and the new one that was just not as good. When Ezra returns to lead revival, he finds out that many of the leaders of the returned exiles had been compromised by inappropriate marriages to non-Israelites. When Nehemiah leads a movement to rebuild the walls, he discovers that the returned exiles have perpetuated unjust lending practices leading to enslavement of their fellow Israelites. What is going on here? These three movements that builds expectation for us is then followed by a high point in the book. In Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10, the walls of Jerusalem are completed in 52 days and dedicated with great fanfare. The choirs are singing, there's marching bands, all of the stuff. 
They rally the Israelites from all ages then to hear scripture out loud. And it's a seven-day Bible marathon, as Pastor Icky said last week. A seven-day Bible marathon. And the people are so moved that they commit themselves to following God and the Torah all over again. The temple, they promised, won't be abused by the power of politics anymore. The people devoted themselves to the covenant and God's commands. And so here's a slide that summarizes the three things so far. Zerubbabel builds the temple, brings people back, but mixed results. Ezra reads the Torah, brings the law to the people, but again, mixed results. And Nehemiah builds the wall, mixed results. And after all of this, Nehemiah in chapter 12 and 13 heads back to Persia to the king who he was working for. And he returns 12 years later and finds that every one of these commitments, the temple, the Torah, the wall, every one of them had been compromised. The temple was neglected and defiled. The Torah was compromised with marriages that got worse. And the walls were not working as protection, but now became commerce on the Sabbath, the holy of holies for God's people. And so the final chapter of Nehemiah shows his response. Verse 25 says, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. You think the people listened? Somehow, I have a feeling that none of the lessons for leadership from Nehemiah includes this part of the story. And that is because he is not being offered as a model for successful leadership. That's not what the Bible is about. Rather, what I think is happening here is Nehemiah's experience is telling the truth about our human condition. Apparently, the disaster of the exile did not accomplish the transformation of the human heart. Even grave consequences don't bring about a deep level of healing required to change the human disposition. Israel's problem before the exile was that they had a hardened heart. A closed heart. A dead heart. And that resulted in rebellion against the covenant and God. So Israel's problem before the exile was a hardened, dead heart, and now after exile, well, it's exactly the same. And what this tells us is that the new covenant provinces, the new covenant provinces of Jeremiah and Ezekiel had yet to be fulfilled and realized. And then even though the Israelites are back in their ancestral land, they are still in exile, spiritually speaking. So when we turn to the opening pages of the New Testament and find John the Baptist going down to the Jordan River where Israel first entered the land, the new promised land, things should click for us. John the Baptist is trying to lead a new return from exile, a spiritual return from exile. That's why his baptism was a movement of repentance and forgiveness. 
John knew, as did Jesus, that what God's covenant people truly needed wasn't a new temple building and was certainly not a new city wall. What God's covenant people needed was new hearts that could truly respond to God's love with grace and grateful devotion. Not a hardened heart, but a transformed heart. And this, not leadership, but this is the purpose of Nehemiah in the overarching story of the Bible. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah shows that the return of many Israelites to Jerusalem was one small step toward the fulfillment of God's promises in this new covenant. The full realization of that home hope came about only because God, when God's self entered the personal story of Israel in the form of Jesus, the Messiah and the King. And it is through Jesus' life, death and resurrection and through the gift of the Spirit that the story took a quantum leap forward from hardened hearts to transformed hearts. So, it's worth reflecting on the fact that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is a profound statement about leadership, but not the kind that's popular on Amazon.com or the evangelical world. It's a realistic story about religious leaders who are unable to realize their dreams because of the impossible paradox of the human condition. Leaders cannot generate true revival, but they can certainly prevent it from happening. Despite their best intentions, Ezra and Nehemiah are not able to accomplish the transformation of the human heart. And so these books are a literary memorial to the mixed bagness of life and leadership, if you like. Just because you have high ideals and divinely inspired passion does not mean God has to fulfill your dreams. I guess I'll say that one again. Just because you have high ideals and divinely inspired passion does not mean that God has to fulfill your dreams. Even the most capable leaders will tell you that the law of unintended consequences is inevitable human failure will compromise the best of our plans. But that doesn't mean that Ezra and Nehemiah shouldn't have tried. Their stories give us hope and inspiration to keep pointing other people to, God's, uh, to God and, and to keep calling ourselves and others to faithfulness and devotion to God. But after pondering Ezra and Nehemiah, I think our pointing and calling should be done with a sober awareness that our efforts will likely be compromised. This doesn't mean God isn't faithful or good. It means that we're flawed humans whose fundamental selfish nature can be transformed only by the generous gift of God's grace. Leaders who know this, people who know this, will lead and live their lives with the humility and self-awareness that is hard to come by these days. And it's this kind of wisdom and leadership lessons that Ezra and Nehemiah offers to us. And I believe we're better for hearing this message if we have ears to hear it. The end of the review. 
So I want to just say three short things and then a long story to close with. <laughs> the first thing that I think about when I read about this story is a hard heart versus, versus an open heart. Um, Nathan, I forgot to put that slide in. If you could just bring out the, the, the picture of the two hearts back again. A hard heart versus an open heart. What does a, what does a hardened heart look like today? I cannot answer that for you. I think that is something we all need to take stock of for ourselves and ask ourselves, what does a hardened heart look like? Because the, the, the story of scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation and through the Spirit into our lives today is about this very real tension of the human condition from a, a state of hardened heart, a closed off heart, a dead heart, to an alive heart, a pumping full of love and grace and justice. The tension of that. And so, I don't really have many things for you to, to, to say to you about that, but for you to ponder that question. What does a hardened heart look like? I'll tell you a very quick story about this picture here. I was looking for illustration of a hardened heart versus uh, an alive heart. And those of you in the medical field, will I get extra bonus points for having a, a, a picture of real heart, not the Disney one we know. Um, <laughs> thank you, Leilani, for whistling, or somebody. Um, I found this picture, but it wasn't actually this picture. The picture that I found was one with the, the red heart on the left and the one on the other side was a black heart. And I was like, this is the perfect example of a hardened heart versus an alive heart. And as I looked at that and looked a little bit more, I texted Leilani, who is always the person um, whose judgment I trust. I had two options. I had one of just a heart and then one of the two. And I texted the two to her and I said, I'm not sure about this last heart because the, the red alive heart versus the black dead heart, in my mind, is racist. Because why does black always need to mean dead, right? I texted Jeff McFarland, because when you're stuck with graphics, you text Jeff. <laughs> Jeff will fix anything. I, I really wanted to use this picture here, and I sent it to Jeff, and I said, Jeff, this was just before Sabbath school. I'm like, you're probably in the car on the way to Sabbath school. Can you help me with this? If not, I just won't use the picture, because that will do more damage. You all probably would not have noticed that. But subconsciously, we have to do the work of anti-racism to move from hardened hearts to passionate, transformed hearts. And so I probably spent 45 minutes this morning just on this when I was trying to finish off the sermon. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. Is that how you say it in English? Yeah. But it was to me a real example because then I brought Steve in the conversation. And I'm like, hey, this is what's going on. So Leilani and Steve is helping me think through this. And we're like, no, we cannot show this. 
So I texted Jeff, and Jeff, by his grace, said I'll bring it to Sabbath school. This is sitting in the Journey Sabbath school class, and he's hacking away making me a new picture. So we first made it blue because I thought like if, 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 a, if a red heart is sucked dry from, suck dry, that doesn't sound right, but anyways, emptied of blood, it becomes blue, and so we had a blue and red heart, but that represents uh, Republican and Democratic. <laughs> um, as Steve, the politician, let me know, and I was like, oh, this is not good, okay. Um, that, who cares about bar, bipartisan pol politics? Racism is really the thing that's at the heart for me. But still, let's get a little bit more realistic. I did not have chance to text Dr. John, uh, Jeff Brand to say, what does a dead heart really look like? Cardiologist in our church. So we Googled, and let's hope Google helped us in this. But then I texted Jeff, and Jeff said, I will, I will change it for you. So after a couple of iterations, um, that's what we came up with. Jeff, Steve, Leilani, myself, all working together because the Spirit is calling us from hardened hearts. And if anything, the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah is demonstrating this difficult tension in our lives, personally, collectively, nationally, internationally, of the tension between closed hearts and open hearts, hard hearts and alive hearts, dead and transformed hearts. So my question to you is, what does a hardened heart look like today? The second thing that I wanna point out is the following. <laughs> I guess it wasn't short in true Devo fashion. Um, second thing I wanna say is that Nehemiah was a politician, not a prophet. And I think this is an important uh, distinction for us to make as we read the book of Nehemiah. Sometimes we can think Nehemiah was the prophet, but Nehemiah worked for the king of Persia who helped sponsor him to go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And if you know anything about politics, when those two kind of come together, something interesting happens. I am not an Old Testament scholar, and I've not studied the book of Nehemiah for a long time. I'd leave that to people like Dr. Nino and others. But I think it's important for us to know that Nehemiah was not a prophet. So at the same time that Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, a contemporary prophet, Zechariah, who received a word from God. Gotta be careful here. Please hear my heart on this. Nehemiah sees what's going on in Jerusalem and he prays to God and says, this is what I wanna do. Zechariah sits by himself and God comes to him with a message. And this is what God says to Zechariah, a contemporary at the same time as Nehemiah. Zechariah 2 verse five. Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be the wall of fire around it, says the Lord. And I will be the glory in it. Friends, it makes me wonder, it, it makes me wonder, how could Nehemiah have done things differently perhaps? 
It's easy to sit here millennia down the line and judge Nehemiah. But I just wonder, when you have Zechariah and Nehemiah at the same time, how could things have gone differently? Could there have been less hair pulling out? Could there have been less beating? I don't know. In all these three movements, it's clear that outsiders have no part in God's plans, according to the leaders. Zerubbabel, I think I said it right now for the first time. Zerubbabel says to the outsiders who want to come help rebuild the temple, we do not need your help. Ezra comes and says to those who've mixed marriages, we don't want that and forces a decree that forces everyone to divorce. When Malachi, a contemporary prophet, says divorce is against God. And then Nehemiah comes and he does not want the outside people to have any part of the rebuilding of the walls as well. Makes me wonder how the story of Nehemiah could have gone differently. And I think it's important for us to remember that Nehemiah was a project manager, not a prophet. As Leilani told me this morning, Nehemiah was marinated in and imprinted with imperialism. He worked for the Persian king, yet he was faithful to God. Remember, I'm not trying to downplay Nehemiah and his work here. I'm simply saying the tension that is happening here. Nehemiah's actions came out of the context of sponsored imperialism. So, what does a hardened heart look like today? And how do we think about prophets versus politicians? And here's the last one. Nehemiah ends with this verse. Remember me, O God, for good. In fact, the three times that we find the people of God disobeying God's, uh, when Nehemiah comes back and he finds uh, the temple being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Temple being, yes, defiled, thank you. Somebody was listening. <laughs> when they find the temple being defiled, at the end of all this, after throwing out all the Ikea furniture and everything like that and making room for the Levites to come back, he says, remember me, O God, for the good that I've done. And then at the Sabbath, when the Sabbath comes, um, and, the, and, he, and he says, don't do these kind of things, he says, remember me, O God. And then when it comes to the intermarriage, and he, and, and he says, don't do this, it's gotten worse, and he tears people's hair out, stuff like that, he says, remember them, O God. And the very last line is, remember me, O God, for good. And it just makes me think, is this a discouraged leader? Um, the language from Nehemiah where he prayed to God was us, and now it moved to me. I don't know what all went on in all of this, and I don't really know what to say about this, except for maybe Nehemiah had wisdom that comes from age, that the condition of the human heart is tension between a hardened heart and between a transformed heart. And I love what Eugene Peterson says. We've said this many times here. 
The Christian life is about a long obedience in the same direction. And I believe that Nehemiah demonstrates a long obedience in the same direction, doing the very best he could in his context. And I know the musicians are playing here, but there's one more thing. <laughs> I'm sorry for those of you sitting in the transepts here. Uh, I think the TV monitors aren't working and that's in all likelihood my fault. Um, so you won't see this now, but as Pastor Steve said, this last two weeks, we've been redoing the lights. We've got new lights in today. Um, you may have noticed it's been really dark over the last couple of months in here. We had 12 lights on this pillar, second pillar over here, and at any given time, we've had three or four of them only work. These lights were installed many decades ago, and it's been a frustration on our part, but money is always a challenge. So Lauren Spire, our maintenance manager, goes up with a ladder from the third pew all the way to the top there. It doesn't look very high. I've done it once, and when I got up there, I said, never again. And he would go up, and we know this is safety. Lee Koffeltz and uh, Bob Hansen, they've gone up there in their 70s changing lights there for us. So this is a safety hazard. Of course, money, we need money. So finally, we're like, this is enough. We need to change this. So project lighting, LED lights, these things should not need to be changed for 10, 12 years. Praise the Lord. Um, and so we had this project. Let me show you some, some pictures. So there you can see some of the cables and there were many people involved in making this happen. I texted David Johnson that picture. I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. Go to the next slide, uh, Nathan, thank you. Uh, the, then what I did, Lauren and I worked together and I guess because I'm younger, I was the one I had to crawl below the, the, the floor of the sanctuary here and the ceiling of the downstairs basement, this crawl space where we have cables going. So I had the great honor and privilege of spending time on my belly crawling in there. Go to the next one. So you can see some of the cables there. And then I, you know, just, you just gotta keep crawling. You don't wanna break through the, the, the ceiling. Go to the next one, Nathan. And then you find, oh, there's, yeah, just to prove that I was there. Uh, <laughs> And go to the next picture. Have you seen the next picture? I don't know who Lester Carney is, but you find odd things. Must be an evangelistic poster of some sort. Toss that. And then I found this in my crawling. That, friends, is a rat. It's a dead rat. I texted, you can zoom into the next one, Nathan. I, t I texted this to the pastoral team, and I think it was Pastor Otis said, well, it's better than a, an alive rat. I was like, I'm not so sure. That thing looked like really dead, dead. Um, I, I crawled probably like 20 feet. I didn't see it on the way there. I thankfully only saw it on the way back, but I had to go back again. So I probably need to go remove it at some point. Um, it's still there. I won't tell you where that is. <laughs> uh, next slide. So you find interesting things. And this is what I found. I found someone, go to the next slide, up in the crawl space, somebody had made a little swan origami. Isn't that cute? And then I decided I'm gonna open that to see if there's anything written inside. And this is what it said in the inside. It was a bulletin insert from many years ago for uh, women communication skills in the working place. Obviously a very different time in our life. And it was with Lisette Norton, the director of the human resources at Southeastern California Conference. Many of you know Lisette. I was like, wow, this is awesome. It's from 1994. Somebody was in the crawl space in 1994 in preparing this building for worship and they put a little swan there and I was the one who found it. Ah, anyways, let's keep going. 
Beautiful, I just needed to bring that illustration somehow. So we ran cables all the way from behind the baptistry, keep going to the next one, please, Nathan, uh, down to that pillar over there. We had to find space, go to the next one. Uh, and there's the lights on the floor before they go in. Next one, please, Nathan. And there's Lauren, our facility manager up there, trying to make space for the cables to come through. Go on, Nathan. We had to switch over electric work. We're so grateful to have someone like Lauren around. Even Pastor Steve jumped in on the act. Uh, we needed some help fixing some pews while we were at it. We had to remove all the pews to bring in the lift in here. Uh, the story will make sense in just a second, okay? <laughs> Pastor Steve got up on the ladder to help close the, the wires over there. Um, keep going to the next one. Uh, Pastor Otis, uh, one of the things that happen in projects and project management, things go wrong. Uh, we ran all the cables and the company uh, apologized that they gave us the wrong cables. And we just spent four days laying a thousand foot of cables and Lauren and I work, and he was tired and I had to knock off at the end of the day. And I told Pastor Otis, they're coming the next day to, to tip and everything here. We really need to get this done. Can you help me? Pastor Otis, I'm there. What a man, what a man. So we finished the, 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 the wire pull again. Um, next, next slide. And then um, we rented, the, rented, we borrowed the lift from the university in order to get up here in a safe way. We're grateful to the university for giving it to us. We, we had to take it all the way from the Zapara school. It weighs 1,050 pounds, and we need to push it all the way from there to here. Uh, and one morning, uh, I asked Joey if he could help, and Joey Filer, Joey, are you here today? I don't know. He, he came to help us, and Don Miller came to help us. Um, what I'm trying to say is this project takes everyone who has a heart for transformed spaces. Uh, go to the next one. And then uh, Paul over here, today's the first time we ran the lights. Paul learned a very complex lighting system in two hours yesterday and programmed everything so it works today. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Uh, next one, what's the next slide? I don't even know anymore. Oh, there's the lights that are installed. They look much better up here now. Next one, Nathan, and I think uh, go to the final slide or the next to final slide. Ah, so I decided I found a little swan, origami swan. Someone had done the hard work of preparing this space for worship. And they left a little swan just to say I was here and I did my best. So I decided I'm gonna make an origami put up YouTube, I, I didn't know what to write, go back again, so I just wrote my name, Pastor, September 22, LED lights installation, be well. And then I went to YouTube to figure out how to do origami, and this is what it looked like. Um, and so there's, yeah. Next slide, I decided to find a space that only I know, and I hope Lauren doesn't find it. But only I know, I took that little butterfly that presents the spirit of this place. And it's in here somewhere. Because we, I, Steve, Lauren, Joey, Don, Paul, David, everybody that's been working this project, did our best to make this space a place for worship. A long obedience in the same direction 
even if it's just one simple step at a time with failures and successes, ultimately God is the one who gathers all of our failures and successes, redeems it in God's kingdom for good.